Welcome to a special edition of Sounds Jewish, coming to you from the heart of what's become a fixture on the British literary calendar, Jewish Book Week, at the Royal National Hotel in Bloomsbury. Coming up on this podcast, interviews with Jewish royalty, Maureen Lippmann, with the acclaimed author Edmund Duval, human rights campaigner Anat Hoffman, The Guardian's very own maestro of song, Dorian Linsky, and with Anne Frank's last surviving relative, remembering the girl whose eyes shone with life. This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Well, you can hear from the noise all around me that things are humming here in central London. People either going to or coming from talks on everything from the city of Jerusalem to the music of Marla, from the monster egos of the great American Jewish writers to the cooking of Babylon. Now in its 59th year, Jewish Book Week has become a standout event for the Jewish community, but also for the world of letters beyond. Guardian types are well represented here. Gary Young is doing a turn, as is Hannah Poole, Linda Grant and Jonathan Friedland. Spend a week down here and you'll have been able to bump into some of writing's heavy hitters, from Clive James to Anthony Julius, with the booker-winning Howard Jacobson closing the festival, getting the last word in, as ever. Much of the buzz, however, this year has been about a book by a man whose day job is not as a writer at all. Edmund Duval is a highly eminent ceramicist, but in The Hair with Amber Eyes, he tells the story of his forebears, the Ephrusis, one of Europe's most illustrious Jewish families, a dynasty that once rivalled the Rothschilds. The Anschluss and Second World War swept the Ephrusis family to the blink of oblivion. Almost all that remained of their vast empire was the Netsuke, a collection of tiny Japanese carvings which were dramatically saved by a loyal maid when their huge Viennese palace was occupied. In this acclaimed book, Edmund Duval unravels his family's biography through his inherited collection of carvings, tracing their journey from Paris through Vienna to Tokyo, surviving two world wars. For Sounds Jewish, Karen Glazer asks him what prompted a potter to turn from clay to the written word. I thought I could sort of knock this book off in about six months maximum, um, just by pasting together a few bits and pieces of, from archives and, and things I knew and a bit of nice continental travel. Um, what I hadn't registered at all was that the story would just be so completely compelling that actually I'd be completely t- sort of taken up by it and and taken through extraordinary material and taken into sort of terrible places in 19th and 20th century history. And that once I was in the story, I just had to feel like, I felt I had to finish it. I had, And it did take years. And if you could give us the bare bones of that story, explain the role of the the linking thread um, of the Netsuke. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, the, the, the story really centres on the fact that I inherited a collection of 264 tiny little Japanese objects, Netsuke, um, from a very loved great-uncle um, who, I, who lived in Tokyo. Um, and really, the story sort of hinges on... on where these little objects have been um, and why they were so important in the family, why these tiny little inconsequential things had survived sort of uh, cataclysms um, and been passed on from one person to another. And the, the, the family story 
takes us all from Odessa, where this Russian Jewish family began, through Paris during the Belle Epoque to Vienna at the turn of the century, and then right the way through to South London in the 21st century. So it's quite a long period of time. You're writing, um, say, a story about um, an assimilated Jewish family, a family which I think you describe at one point as having disappeared into Vienna. Um, And I think you also say at one point, I don't know what it's like to be an assimilated Jew. Um, And in fact, you know, as as, as the son um, of a a clergyman and a church historian, who's also, I think your mother's also the daughter of a vicar, it's not not that you're not only not an assimilated Jew, if I can put it like that, Um, you know, you're, you're somebody who isn't Jewish, but who has a Jewish Family. I mean, it was fascinating for me. I mean, absolutely fascinating. Because, I mean, I came, as you say, from this deep, deep Anglican um, background, which is all about, you know, place and settledness and continuity. And the fact of this, uh, the very, this unvoiced, unspoken experience of, uh, of the fact that my father was a refugee, a Jewish refugee, just hadn't been talked about at all in my family, to try and find out about it and then write about it and then live it has been very catalytic for me and very peculiar. I feel very undefended. I feel like I'm sort of going into territory that I don't quite understand and uh, it's uh, and it's all new. You say it was, a, you mentioned the word unspoken. I mean, why, why do you think these things were not spoken about in your, in your family? I, 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 I think, I think, I sort of trace a history of silence going right the back to the moment they leave the shtetl. I mean, I really do. I think it's 200 years of, of, of one silence on top of another. Um, acculturation, assimilation, whatever. But it's also a, a kind of attempt to, to, um, to blend in. And, and, and so in that sense, it's absolutely about not saying where you've come from. So every place you begin, you begin anew whether it's a, you know, you end up in Odessa and you build a big house in Odessa, or you end up in Vienna, etc., or you end up in Tunbridge Wells, for God's sake. And what do you do in Tunbridge Wells? You don't say, actually, I'm a, you know, I'm an aristocratic Jewish intellectual. You, you just go to the local parish church. You, you, there's a, so there's a sort of sense of, um, a sense of, in the book, I think, of, of trying to understand really what assimilation can mean. In its, in its complicated way of actually losing something as well as gaining something. Your father's mother, Elizabeth Dewell, as you say, she, uh, sitting on the surface at least, um, adopted a very English um, life when she reached these shores. But was there not a flicker of a sort of Jewish-Viennese um, flame? Well, it's one... I mean, I have, have had letters from neighbours of hers in Tunbridge Wells saying I never knew she was Jewish, mm-hmm. you know, and that's quite extraordinary. So, well, I, I wonder... I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> I think anyone who looked at her bookshelves would have noticed mm. <laughs> something was going on, um, even in Tunbridge Wells. So something definitely was going on. Um, and, I, I, you know, she was, a, a, you know, a, a tremendous, creative, fierce, independent and brave woman. Uh, and part of that was her remaking of herself in this country without any nostalgia at all. And I, I, I was certainly very moved. Um, you mentioned in, in the book that you, your father said Kaddish for her yes. in, a, in a 
unlikely setting yes, exactly. <laughs> of Harris Church, yeah. but he did, yeah. as indeed you did for your beloved yeah. uncle, yeah. Iggy. Iggy. Yeah. Um, could you add to that? I don't know if I can, to be honest. I mean, I, isn't that enough? I mean, just to say simply that that in some places and at some moments, you know, you you have to help circles back to where they began and 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 that that was the right thing for these wonderful children of exile here we are at the book fair i've bumped into henry goodman walking around on the floor the real life man how are you sir i'm good i'm just enjoying a moment to catch up and look at the books before i have to do my piece and your piece will involve well i'm doing some readings from stefan zweig who wrote an amazing play about uh, jeremiah and zedekiah but also these remarkable essays about travel in europe and 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 at a time when the jews were redefining especially the forefront of literature to what do they belong and all of that. So some remarkable bits that we uh, I'm going to read with musicians playing um, bits of music that he loved and cared about. You know, as an actor, you don't often, because I'm fortunate to be busy, but I don't often get time to listen to remarkable speakers like Martin Gilbert and everybody else, you know, from the comedic people like doing more witty things like Maureen right through to abstruse authors and also... I find that the, the, what's wonderful is the non-Jewish authors do, writing books that have insights that take on a new, a new uh, prescience and a you know, special significance. Even though I'm not a great fan of Niall Ferguson, the stimulating challenge of all that he is and he writes about is the sort of thing that you get when you get here, you know. I've got to go and rehearse. Henry, go and be Stefan Zweig for a bit. Lovely to all see you. All the best. I'm in the, one of the vast halls here at Jewish Book Week, and I'm joined by Jewish royalty here at Jewish Book Week. Uh, Maureen Lippmann, uh, how lovely to see you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Books, are they important to you? Well, I don't have a Kindle, if that's what you mean. Mm-hmm. I have many, many shelves of books, none of which I ever reread. So I do sometimes wonder what they're doing there. But I, yes, I, I, I don't, a curious, I've read all my life. You know, I'm short-sighted, like, most of my tribe, um, from reading late into the night. And after I lost my husband and my mother, I couldn't read. Didn't read for three years. Couldn't you just, lo- just lost the, the will to do it? I didn't have any sense of what you need to read a book, which is to know what happens at the other end and to you know, have that kind of concentration. And that was a great, you know, it was a huge loss. Um, and... Then it slowly came back, and this, you know, the six years now, um, uh, you know, the last three years, yes, I've gone back to reading, and thank God, because, you know, what else do you do when you get into bed? (laughs) Have you got any suggestions? (laughs) Well, I have a few, but uh, maybe it would upset you. What I was going to ask you is that, uh, apart from the reading aspect, you're now writing books. We had Past It Notes, which was here at at Jewish Book Week, and now you've got a, a new book here. When you write, do you think, I must get... I must get a Jewish bit in there, or is that just inextricable? To be a successful writer, you have to put your... Or, indeed, a successful cabaret performer. You have to put yourself on the line. You have to, they have to come out of the evening knowing you a lot better. And if I don't go out there and give them the version that I have decided is Maureen Lippmann, 
whether that's true or not. If they don't believe that, if they don't identify with that, if they're not moved and amused by that, then um, I've failed at my job. Uh, there was a, a programme on Ken Dodd uh, the other night, an arena actually, who said that comedians, actors in many ways, but and I see you as both of those, a comedian and actor, have two lives, the live that you project onto the stage and give the people, and then the real life. But I always expect, see in your writing... Uh, a, a rapprochement, a, a kind of meeting of the two. Is that what we're going to get today? Well, I'll be quite surprised to hear what I'm going to say today. I was trying to persuade my partner to go to see Martin Gilbert instead of me um, because I'm winging it. Look, the difference between this book that we haven't yet mentioned called I Must Collect Myself and and my other books is that I have branched out for once because I say there is nothing on television for somebody like me to watch. I've decided to write monologues for people to perform, amateurs, um, actors for auditions. And so this book, within the confines of anecdotal badinage, bad enough, I have written 21 monologues for people to perform. And they range from a kind of smart um, executive girl who's having it off with the boss on the shag pile every Thursday and trying to get a light from a born-again Christian outside a big office building to a waitress with a Cliff Richard fixation to Britney's Got Talent, which is a 16-year-old girl uh, summing up for the panel why she should get through to the next week. And there are the the, the BAFTAs, I've done uh, a series of acceptance speeches. <laughs> and, I mean, each one is inspired by something. Like there's one which is a Holocaust denier, which is based on a meeting I had with a well-known um, Holocaust denier uh, uh, when Howard Jackson and I found ourselves on the lawn with this woman. And uh, she was fantastically insulting, uh, but was fantastically insulted when I asked her if she'd had a nose job. <laughs> and, and, and so that went into one called Michelin. I've made her South African instead of Australian because I thought it might be more fun. And, and, and that's the departure. It's called I Must Collect Myself, and I think somebody has conveniently come to collect you because you're on. Maureen Lippman, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I've got, I've got a mother and son combination here at the Book Fair at Jewish Book Week. Who am I talking to? Lisa Nydek. And Ethan Schwartz. Hello, welcome to welcome to Sounds Jewish. Uh, what is it about Jewish Book Week that, uh, that attracts you? Ethan, you're a, you're a younger reader. It's good. Done. I think people will be pleased to see some youth here. Is there is there any particular sort of area that you find yourself drawn to? A lot of the fiction, um, and particularly like the Israeli fiction. Edgar Karat, for instance, is one of my favourite writers. Um, also because I'm studying at university. I'm doing some modules on Jewish studies, so I'm looking at things that might help me there. Get your credit card out and go yeah. buy it. <laughs> well, that's why you come with your mum, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's what absolutely. you're really here for, mum. Thanks absolutely. very much. Enjoy. Uh, one of the people I found in the, in the book fair is Roger Kamenetz. Uh, his book, Burnt Books, is, uh, is one of the hot tickets today. Uh, you've just given a talk, Roger, and you're, you're giving your uh, book uh, the, the, the signing treatment. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange concoction, uh, your book. It, it joins Rabbi Nachman of Ratzlav and Franz Kafka together. What links these two figures? Well, um, superficially, both men uh, died around age 40 of tuberculosis and both asked their best friends to burn their books. Um, at a deeper level, uh, I found extraordinary conversation going on between their writings, both in their, their reliance on the parable form, which they both derive from Hasidic parable, 
and in the fact that in very interesting ways their stories touch on such themes as the movement of the soul, the transmigration of the soul, uh, the problem of atheism, very, and in many ways very modern concerns. And yet we're talking about two very different Jews. We're not talking about one rabbi and one kind of arch-secular uh, writer, both, as you say, involved very mystically. Uh, but what links them? Is it, is it, is it that? What links them is me. <laughs> I, I, and insofar as I represent the, the problem of the Jew who is half Kafka and half Rebbe, who in certain ways uh, we struggle between our, our intense yearning for, for our soulful uh, tradition and our totally secular sensibility that's embodied in Kafka's uh, irony and humor. Well, anyone who's tried to negotiate their way through uh, the, the maze here at, uh, at Jewish Book we might, might be familiar with Kafka, probably less with Rabbi Nachman. Can you just tell me a bit about Rabbi Nachman and, and Bratslav? Yes. Rabbi Nachman uh, was um, a great-grandson of the founder of Hasidism, the Baal Shem Tov, and he's best known for his mystical tales, in which he was attempting to reach out, I believe, to every Jew, and really to all of humanity. Now, they both requested that their friends burn their books. What was the, the impulse for both of them doing that? Was it similar? Um, I think there was a difference, but um, uh, Rabbi Nachman was concerned uh, that his books wouldn't be received in a holy way, with, with a kind of respect or reverence that their deep holiness required. So he's willing to burn them rather than have that happen. Uh, Franz Kafka became, I think, uh, it's a more complicated case. Uh, he was uh, concerned sometimes that his books were in a certain way demonic. And certainly many readers of Kafka felt, oh my God, I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> so, so perhaps he was right about that. Now you've got several books here on sale at the, at the book fair. Uh, presumably you, know, you wouldn't want your books burnt. Um, only after being read, I suppose, or memorized. Uh, Bought. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, certainly I feel as a writer, one reason I was so fascinated by the question was it, it seemed to horrify me, the notion of wanting to burn your books. But uh, I said in the session that uh, I've lived long enough that uh, a few of them could probably go. No Jewish Book Week would be complete without a bit of a row about Israel. We're talking about Jews here, and literary Jews at that. They're opinionated. What can you do? The big row this year centred on an event featuring the controversial Haaretz columnist Gideon Levy. But no less a radical figure is Anat Hoffman. A campaigner for religious equality between orthodox and progressive forms of Judaism in Israel, she's also campaigned for women to have equal treatment, insisting on her right to pray at the Western Wall the way any man would. Sarah Peters caught up with Anat earlier and asked her about the books that have inspired and motivated her to take up action. What inspires me is uh, the uncanny ability to get crazy angry reading the paper. And even though I'm in my 50s, I still have that ability to get crazy angry with things that other people habituate to. I just have this, uh, maybe it's a... uh, physiological, neurological problem, I cannot get used to it. I can't get used to inequality. I can't get used to discrimination. I have, even though I banged my head against a brick wall many times, I have a ceaseless hope that I can change it, that things should be changed, will change, it changes tomorrow, and uh, reality doesn't seem to change that. There are so many issues you talk about. Can you name one particular one that really um, yeah. makes your blood boil? 
Yeah, the segregation between men and women in the public sphere for religious reasons makes me crazy angry. First, it's a trend, it's a fashion, it's a fad. It's not, hasn't been that in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Suddenly now, men and women cannot stand in the same queue together. They cannot uh, go to the same health clinic together. They, this is not uh, all over Israel, is it? This particular all over Israel. Health clinics where men and women have to come on separate days. A post office where you have to buy a stamp from a woman, not from a man if you're a woman. A police station where a woman only can take your complaint. A woman policeman, a policewoman. A, uh, the new trend in Sukkot and coming up in Pesach where there is a partition in the middle of a sidewalk, a sidewalk that belongs to everybody and of course the 2500 rides in buses every day where women are assigned to the back of the bus now every morning we hear of another another place like this morning we heard that a, in a funeral that was held on Thursday a woman was asked to sit stand away from her husband men and women were segregated and the rabbi would not start the funeral unless everyone is separated from each other now, this picture of Israel that you're painting uh, doesn't correspond with a picture that most, I guess, secular Jews have of Israel, which is of a, a pluralistic, secular, vibrant society. Are you referring to the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox communities of Israel? Israelis uh, <laughs> don't like to think that this is happening, an encroaching thing in all cities. But the, the, the post office I'm talking about, yes, is in Jerusalem. But the police station is in Ashdod. Would you say Ashdod is a is a ultra-Orthodox city? The uh, health clinics are in Bet Shemesh. Would you say that Bet Shemesh is an ultra-Orthodox city? Um, the bus lines are all over Israel. The Jerusalem Tzfat line, the Arad Jerusalem line, the Haifa Jerusalem line. These are not ultra-Orthodox cities, and of course, internal lines of the buses. No, this is a growing phenomena. And when we placed the, uh, our latest publication was the, was a uh, report on all the segregation in Israel on the Knesset table, it surprised many of the members of Knesset. It will, people will wake up to it when it knocks on their door. We went to court against the bus company. We won. As of the 31st of January, in all Israeli buses, there is a sign that says, due to Supreme Court decision 74607, it is illegal to harass anyone in a bus. Any passenger can sit anywhere they wish in a bus, and anyone who harasses could be charged with a felony. Eged. We won that. And so the inspiration for work or action I get from the newspaper. Tell me, why is this happening? You said it wasn't happening in the 70s or 80s. Why now? What, what's changed? One suggestion of one sociologist is that the segregation in the Jewish sector is inspired by the Arab sector, that we are mingling in the Middle East more than we expect, and that the ideas of modesty from the Arab Muslim world are seeping into the Jewish sector uh, and that's why it's happening. And there is also a fad in Bechemish, by the way, of Taliban women, women who are dressed the way, yes, the way Taliban women wear. Another, another suggestion is that too many rabbis who are state-paid with too little to do. And I actually believe in that. I think that when, when co the competition in the field of religiosity is really no competition, you are 
you're all men and you're all orthodox and you're all paid by the state. Um, then the way you can make yourself more religious than the next guy is that you keep the cleanliness of the eyes. You look only at your wife, your sister, and your mother, and you don't look at any other woman. Maybe that makes you more religious, more holy. And the holiness as a, di- as a function of distancing yourself from women, I think that's what's happening. I know you've been deeply involved in the, uh, the issue of, of a woman praying in a talit and holding the Sefer Torah at the Western Wall. How is that campaign going? Well, it's not a campaign. We are a congregation, congregation of women. We've been going to the wall for 22 years, attempting to wear a talis, pray out loud, and read Torah. Our group is multi-denominational, with a great majority of Orthodox women in the group. And uh, unfortunately, it is illegal in Israel for a woman to do these three acts. And I was arrested, and so was my friend Nufat Frenkel, uh, for uh, performing a religious act that offends the feelings of others. The Jerusalem police, as uh, in its wisdom, decided to charge me with this felony, which is one year imprisonment or 100,000 shekel fine. But the Attorney General of Israel has not yet made a decision whether to accept or reject the police recommendation. I intend to continue to fight for this because I would like to see the first bat mitzvah at the wall. Uh, For those listeners of yours who are saying that uh, uh, I'm asking for too much, I would like to qualify and say I want to have that bat mitzvah only one hour a month. And may the government decide when that one hour will pose the least injury to the feelings of others. If there is no room for women to have a bat mitzvah 11 hours a year, then something is very wrong at the wall. If I can't read Torah at least one hour a month, then I think no one has the right to read Torah. Uh, The Torah was given to me too. I was there in Sinai. It's documented. And if it's mine, I should be able to read it. I can understand that it's unusual at the wall, but we are, as a democracy, measured by how we deal with a minority, how we deal with something unusual. And when the Minister of Religious Affairs says to me, you know, if a million of you made Aliyah and a million of you were demanding that, then I would agree. I said back, Mr. When a million of us make Aliyah, you won't be the Minister of Religious Affairs. We would vote for someone else to be the minister, and we won't need you for, for any favors. But what consoles me after a long day of fighting and feeling sometimes alone, feeling sometimes attacked. What consoles me is the wonderful Amos Oz. Amos Oz is a category of his own, with a story of love and darkness as one of the masterpieces of the world, as far as I'm concerned. He should get the Nobel Prize. He is really one of Israel's greatest, greatest achievements. Altogether, when I look at the cultural products fruits of Israel, they are tremendous in everything, in technology, in agriculture, in, 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 in literature. Sadly, with 67,200 young men being exempt from the army in 2010, I am asking the ultra-Orthodox sector, where is your Maimonides? Where is your Amos Oz? You have tens of thousands that are exempt, completely devoted to Torah. Well, show me the result. Show me. We have nine Nobel Prize, Israeli Nobel Prize winners. Show me the one work that was written by one of these guys that shook the Jewish world, that everyone in the world is saying, this is a Jewish work that could only be done in Israel and is so superb. I don't see it. 
I think that the orthodox monopoly is damaging first and foremost to orthodoxy. And uh, I would like to fight for good competition, a kick in the ass in the religious world in Israel. Now, Jews and music are a big theme here at Jewish Book Week. Actor Henry Goodman's done a session while critic Norman Lebrecht has been asking and answering the question how Mahler's music stems directly from his Jewish heritage. Rather more surprising, perhaps, though, is the inclusion of a history of protest songs with the wonderful title 33 Revolutions Per Minute. It comes from The Guardian's very own Dorian Linsky, but what, you might wonder, is the Jewish connection. So, Dorian, protest music. I'm picturing black civil rights marchers singing We Shall Overcome. I'm not seeing Jews. Have Jews actually written protest songs? Well, you could say that the first great modern protest song, Strange Fruit, was written by um, a Jew, which was actually not known for years because his name was Abel Mirapal and he was a, a communist school teacher from Brooklyn. Uh, but he wrote under the name Lewis Allen. You know, so like a lot of people at that time, he chose a Gentile alias. Um, and it was kind of his, his part in the story was pushed out a little bit. People assumed it was written especially for Billie Holiday. Um, but he represents that tradition of Jewish activists, many of whom were in the Communist Party, who sympathised with the plight of black Americans. What made a, a, a Jew from Brooklyn be able to picture the southern trees, the, 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 the lynched uh, Negroes on trees for the birds to pluck? Where did he get such powerful imagery from? He was moving within um, you know, left-wing circles. Uh, he was writing a lot of topical songs. And that one was particularly inspired by a 1930 picture of two black men being lynched in Indiana, which actually was about nine years old by the time he wrote the song. Uh, but that seemed to him to represent one of the cruelest sides of American society. Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies swinging In the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees uh, now, Jews famously did march alongside the, the civil rights protesters of the 60s, very strongly uh, aligned to those, uh, those marches. Um, is that something that you managed to kind of uncover in your book? Uh, and is it something that's acknowledged in the songs themselves? Not as far as I can tell in so many songs. I mean, obviously, Bob Dylan was Jewish. The most prominent Jews in the book tend to be activists like Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman of the Yippies, um, Allen Ginsberg, and many, many um, civil rights activists that were involved in, say, the Mississippi Freedom Rides, the Mississippi Freedom Summer, they were a kind of vital, vital part. But if you actually think of some of the most famous Jewish songwriters like uh, Leonard Cohen, he's very much more sort of a poetic, artistic type. Why is there that particular empathy, do you think, between a Jewish experience and the black experience of the 70s and 60s? Well, I think that, you know, there was a, both a shared sense of strong cultural identity, of feeling like outsiders, you know, that a lot of the time, you know, with people like the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, anti-Semitism and racism went hand in hand. And so there is that sympathy with the, with the underdog, but also the very kind of smart, defiant, resilient underdog. And, you know, obviously, the, actually the history of black power and uh, Judaism is quite complicated. You know, Malcolm X never sort of renounced anti-Semitism. You know, it's, it's an enduring kind of problem. Um, 
So it's yeah, there's a sort of vexed relationship, I think. Uh, Doran, we've concentrated there on a sort of black Jewish connection as well, which is very strong. Um, uh, you know, and you, you mentioned uh, Nina Simone covering "I Love You, Porgy," of course, written by the Gershwins, and Porgy Mess written by the Gershwins as well. Uh, what, are there any other strands you get a look in in the protest songs? Well, it all really starts with the unions at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, then later on, you've got fear of the atomic bomb. You know, which runs through the 60s right through the 80s. You've got the general generation gap. You know, a lot of the time what Dylan was drawing on there was this kind of sense that the, the elders were out of control. They were, they were doing it wrong. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Is it had behind walls? Is it had behind discs? I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You know, punk was a response to the rise of the far right and recession. So there's always things to um, to be angry about, to protest about. I think almost wherever you've come from. It says a lot about the place of the Holocaust in the Jewish collective memory that there's an entire strand in Jewish Book Week dedicated to the Holocaust and its aftermath. The standout name among the speakers this year is perhaps Bernard Buddy Elias. Not only is he a retired professional skater, not too many of them down here, I can tell you that, and still a working actor, he's also the first cousin of Anne Frank. The recent discovery of a trove of Frank family letters has led to the publication of a new book, Treasures from the Attic, by Miriam Pressler and Buddy's wife, Gertie Elias. Buddy remembers Anne Frank well, as he told Henrietta Foster for Sounds Jewish. Well, Anne and I got along terrifically together. Although she was younger than me, she was, she was a wild little child, a lovable little child, and I was a wild boy as well. The funny thing was that Margot, her sister, was more my age. But I can't remember having played often with Margot because Margot was a very highly intelligent, and I remember Margot mostly reading. But Anna and I, we, we played together. We had, she had so many ideas what to do and what to play, and it was for me wonderful. We were both wild kids, you know. While we were together in Switzerland, uh, the, uh, the family in their vacation, in the children's vacation, they always came to, to Switzerland to spend the time with us. It, either in Basel in Switzerland or in the mountains in Sils Maria. Or we played hide and seek and we, we played different games. And Anna asked me to get dressed up in, my gra- in our grandmother's clothes. Well, you can imagine how I looked in grandmother's clothes. But of course, that lo- Anna loved theater and we got along terrifically, Anna and I. Because she was very jealous that you could skate so much and she loved your skating. Can you tell us a bit about her excitement about your skating? Yes, well, Anna had, Anna, my hobby was skating, and I even turned professional after the war. Of course, Anna didn't know that anymore. She was not alive there anymore. But she always hoped to go skating with me, and, and uh, it, 
It pained, it hurt me very much that it never happened. She even wrote about it. She made a little article about how she goes skating with me. She described the different figures we would skate. And she even designed a little skirt. She would, she would uh, have tailored for, for herself if she would go skating with me. It was terrible for her when in 1941, Jews were not allowed to skate anymore in Holland, like everything else. Everything was forbidden for Jews. Jews were not allowed to swimming pools, not allowed in cinemas, theaters. And when, uh, when Anna could not go skating anymore, it was very bad for her. Thoughts of you and thoughts of those happy vacations kept her very much alive in the secret annex. Do, do you feel that's the case? Yes, very much. I missed her very much. I missed the whole family, of course, and... It was terrible not to know anything about them. I mean, my father corresponded with one of the uh, employees of Otto Frank, but he was not allowed, of course, to, to say, tell anything about the Frank family openly. It would have been too dangerous. Only there was once, once uh, a line in a letter, I remember, where he wrote, our little girl is growing and she is well. So we figured that it, that it would have been Anne. And then the war finished. And this is where the, the book, I think, is very good because it tells us what your family was going through, how you were waiting and waiting for news of the Frank family. Yes, of course. We had no idea the war was over and we had heard nothing. When Otto was uh, free in Auschwitz, when the Russians freed him, he immediately wrote a letter to, to us in Basel. But the war was still going on. Postage did not function and we didn't get this letter till five, five months later. So the first thing we heard was a telegram that was sent to us by the Red Cross shortly before Otto returned to Europe. It said, we will arrive in Marseille in good health, uh, Otto. But uh, that was all we heard, and it, it, it said, we will arrive, and we had the hope that it was the whole family but later it turned out it was only Otto. When we, when we found out everything, it was a great shock, naturally. I mean, after Otto had returned from Auschwitz, he went to the station in Amsterdam every day, asking people, did anyone know my, my children? Has anyone seen my children? And one month later, he found out. He went to a, a board that was on the wall, with, with names of people that came back and with names of people that did not come back. And there we saw one day Frank Margot and Frank Anne with two little crosses behind. So there, then he found out that his children would not come back. And then he called us by telephone in Switzerland and told us this sad news. And it was devastating. It was really dreadful for us all. And when did you start hearing about the diary, Anne Frank's diary? Well, when Otto Frank heard about the death of his children, he went to Miepkis, to the woman who supported them during those two years. And Miep, after the arrest, had gone up to the attic to look if she could save something. And there, Anna's diary was laying on the floor, all the papers she had written, because the Gestapo man who arrested the family... He was looking for valuables, and he turned Otto Frank's briefcase upside down. The diary was in there. That was all laying on the floor. Meep collected everything, 
and put it in her writing desk to save it for Anne if she would have come back. And when Otto came to me and said, my children are not coming back, she gave it, she gave all the material to Otto as from, this is from Anne for you. And Otto took it and went to his office. He couldn't start reading at the time. He started reading several days later. Anne's diary is originally written in Dutch, but he translated it into German and sent us, sent it us to us to Switzerland. And that's when I read the first pages of Anne's diary. And what was your reaction? Because you knew Anna as a young girl of 12. The last time you saw her, she was 12. And you knew her as a playmate and a great deal of fun. But when you read the diary, was it a different Anna? When we were overwhelmed. I mean, it's just, I felt the same that what Otto always thought. Otto always said, I didn't know my daughter until I read her diary. And I didn't know Anna the way she wrote in her diary, the deepness of her thoughts, the, the, the humanistic writings she she. She, she became a humanist. She, she wrote wonderful sentences like, someday we will be human beings again and not just Jews. She said, why do people always talk about the strength of men and never about the strength of women? I didn't know Anna that way. What was it like seeing your cousin turn into this famous figure that everybody related to, someone who in a way became an icon of, of that terrible time? Well, I lived with that for many, many years now, and I said, sometimes I say to myself, a child in my family has reached the whole world with her ideas. It, it's, it still moves me almost every day. I mean, I, I, I live with Anna almost every day. I still get so many mails, so many letters from people all over the world. Do you feel there are two Annas? There's the Anna you knew... And the Anna who's of the diary, or do you feel it's still the same Anna? No, no, of course not. It's a, it's a different person. Of course it's Anna, it's my cousin, and, and I see it. If I, if I close my eyes or if I even think of her, I see her. But I see her as the child I knew, not as the person she became. Buddy Elias talking to Henrietta Foster at Jewish Book Week for Sounds Jewish. And that just about wraps it up for us. As you can imagine, we've given you just the smallest taster of what's on offer here all week. Why not come down to the Royal National Hotel in Bloomsbury yourself any day or night from now till Sunday, March the 6th. Nothing on Friday night or daytime Saturday, of course. You can get full details at jewishbookweek.com. Thanks to all our guests and, of course, to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, thanks for listening, goodbye, and happy reading. Shalom, shalom.